Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Good. All right, turn to your other neighbor say, go, go Boise State Broncos. Let's go. We love, we love Bronco Nation. Can I get an amen, church? Not Denver, Broncos. Be clear about that. Uh, I, 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 before I get into my message here today, I'd like to um, also send out appreciation for our staff. We have a world-class staff here at the church, and uh, if you're on staff and you're in this service, can you stand up? Just go stand, 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 stand. Yes, God bless you, God bless you, God bless you, God bless you. Amazing. All over the, we love, I mean, honestly, you guys are so blessed. I just how they pray for you guys and they serve and uh, we, we are blessed again to have not just talented staff members, but staff members that have a heart for people. Can I get any man church? So we're so, we're so blessed. So thank you for um, everything that you guys do. I want to thank all of our volunteers. You guys are amazing. We could not do what we do, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week without being a part of a family. And uh, as volunteers, you're not just volunteering. Lord, you're just, you're, that's just an expression of you're a family member. And so I just think we're part of a great church. And I want to thank all of our volunteers for everything that they do. And then I want to thank my um, parents, Pastor Ken and Connie, uh, as our founding pastors for starting this church. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. My dad is six foot five. My mom isn't quite six foot five, but uh, we're so blessed. And uh, I want to thank you, mom and dad, for everything that you've done. And we are here today because of your selflessness and your passion to build for the kingdom of God. And mom, happy 42nd birthday. It's a little bit weird because I'm 46, but anyways, let's go with it. Yes. But we love, come on, how many of you love Pastor Connie? Love Pastor Connie. Okay, are you ready for today's message? You give me about 35, 40 minutes. Uh, so uh, today, if you're here actually last week, we talked about uh, one of the major distinctives of the early church was the early church had a high, everyone say high, had a high sense of sexual character. So we kind of fleshed that out last week. So uh, the title of the message last, last week was God and Human Sexuality. Uh, today I'm going to be kind of riffing off of that theme. We're going to go a little bit deeper into the weeds and uh, we're going to be talking about selfhood, identity, the trans community, and uh, then we're going to move into what does the Bible say about who we are, ourselves, our identity, and then I'm going to have two responses as a church to our cultural moment. So are you guys ready? So that's basically just a, that's an outline of kind of where we're going uh, today. Uh, I want to begin with an interview in 2015. It was Diane Sawyer, and uh, maybe some of you saw it. It was with uh, Bruce, um, Bruce Jenner, and uh, there's a conversation, a little tete-a-tete between them, and it was live uh, TV. Sociologists say this was the tipping point for the transgender movement. I also am going to define terms as well as to what we're talking about, but I'll do that in, in a few minutes. So this is how the conversation went. Bruce was asked several questions, and uh, this was his response. He goes, I look at this look at what, what's going on in this way. Bruce was always, he's referring to himself, was telling a lie. He's lived a lie his whole life about who he is, and I can't do anything like that any longer. Should I take my ponytail out? 
He continues, yeah, why not? We're talking about all this stuff. Yeah, let's take the ponytail out. Then Diane Sawyer asked him the question, are you a woman? And his response was, um, yes, for all intents and purposes, I am a woman. People look at me differently. They see you as this macho male, uh, but my heart and my soul and everything I do in life is part of me. The female side is part of me. It's who I am. Uh, I was not genetically born that way. As of now, I still have all uh, my male uh, body parts and all that kind of stuff. So in a lot of ways, we're different, but we still identify as female. And that's very hard for Bruce Jenner to say, because why? I don't want to disappoint people. So essentially what Bruce was saying, I'll just steal essentially what he was saying. Bruce was a construct uh, of an inauthentic or an inauthentic construct imposed on Caitlin or his inner female self. So the question that I want to answer here today is how do we get to the point in our cultural moment where um, I am a woman in a man's body and we see that as self-evidently true. So I want to flesh out or deconstruct the modern person and then I want to lead us into a biblical understanding of ourselves. Are you guys ready? So how do we, how do we get to this modern moment or how did the modern, modern understanding of selfhood and identity become so deconstructed. Well, I got to take you uh, through 200 years of post-enlightenment thinking on uh, selfhood and, and understanding in about a minute. Can you give me a minute? So we begin, and this is, this is out of chronological order, but just go with me. We begin with Charles Darwin and uh, with natural law and his, his theory of, of Darwinianism uh, essentially stripped the world of any intrinsic meaning. So metaphysics was collapsed. God wasn't needed. And so therefore, uh, meaning and purpose uh, was removed as, as definitive or significant for living a human life. We also have Nietzsche. If you don't know anything about Nietzsche, Nietzsche rejected morality and metaphysics as oppressive. Uh, he was anti-metaphysical. He was anti-moral. In his uh, genealogy of morals, he comes up with this fi fictional character called the Madman, and the Madman essentially says that God is dead. And if God is dead, Nietzsche says the morality as an objective thing, as something that transcends uh, human experience, is also dead. Then we come to Rousseau. Rousseau basically critiqued society. Society was corrupt. It caused conformity and uh, it reduced the, the individual. He came up with this hypothetical state of nature where the individual is a noble, savage, innocent beast. Society comes in or larger social interactions happen and the individual is corrupted by greed and competition and conformity. The way into the authentic self, according to Rousseau, is you have to be true to what's on the inside. Then we come to Karl Marx. Karl Marx um, dehistoricized the world. Uh, he believed history was the history of one oppression after another. He also politicized everything. So everything in this world, from macro to micro, from family units to Boy Scouts to real world politics is all political. And then we come to Freud and we have this happy marriage, or we'll call it this unhappy marriage of scientists and philosophers. But we come to Freud in the early part of the 20th century and he sexualized, completely sexualized the self. And with this unhappy marriage, we now have what we would call the modern person. The modern person uh, is shaped and determined by the therapeutic psycholo psychological self, which basically says that the ultimate meaning of life is rooted in how I feel about myself. So we have now the modern person, Judith Butler, 
Gender theorists, feminists said this, gender is just a performance and it possesses no prior ontological status. To be a woman is not to have a certain biological substance, but to repeatedly act like a woman. So in her, her thought, the body is just a bio construct that represses one's true authentic self. It's very Rousseauian, right? It's also, in her words, uh, the matter of gender is all about doing or performance. It's nothing to do about being that determines gender. As opposed to what many first wave, second wave, probably third wave feminists would even say, as opposed to the particular history of being a woman, such as menstruation, conception, pregnancy, childbirth, and the biological reality of femaleness, according to the gender theorist Judith Butler, those things do not matter anymore. So according to our dominant culture and uh, the un unacknowledged legislatures of our cultural moment, which I just mentioned from Freud and Marx and Nietzsche and Rousseau and Darwin, etc., disenchanted our world, there are no longer any fixed categories anymore when it comes to our understanding of self. This is how the world sees it. The moral imperative, everyone say the moral imperative. Go ahead and smile at me. Okay, I just want to make sure you're all with me. The moral imperative is based upon who I think I am, wow. right? So we have elevated the, the, the self as the ultimate arbiter of truth. I want to borrow a term from a person I disagree with fundamentally, but right here he is right on, okay? He said this, all now that is solid in this modern uh, world, all that is solid is constantly in danger of melting into the air, including ourselves. So on this account, this therapeutic psychologized, excuse me, self, bodies are completely, or I'll say rendered irrelevant. So when it comes to identity and, and selfhood, bodies are an accident, bodies are a cosmic fluke. The real me is radically separated from biological sex. Thus we are left with, and these are the consequences, we're left with a plastic and malleable self, which means I can then self-create, right? Because I'm in charge, my ultimate happiness, the moral imperative is predicated on how I feel about myself. So for example, in 2016, New York City released a list of 31 terms of gender expressions, and it's from there, it's, it's, they're still adding things. Every, every, in everything from androgynous to genderqueer to non-binary to pangender to bigender to gender fluid to third sex to two-spirit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So chromosomal coding of our bodies do not matter much anymore. An NPR program recently had a discussion on selfhood and identity uh, at a particular university campus, and this is what they said. Things were so fluid now, or things are so fluid on our campuses, you can make up a different ide identity for different events. So, for example, you could go to lunch as a he, then go to a class as a she. So again, I want to make this very clear. The reason why the modern person in our dominant culture thinks this way uh, is because the world has been, number one, stripped of intrinsic meaning. Are you hearing me? And because the world has been, in, been stripped or deconstructed or whatever, however you want to say that, of intrinsic meaning, metaphysics have collapsed. And because metaphysics have collapsed, are you following the logic here? Morality is no longer seen as an objective thing. It's simply a matter of taste. As I said last week, this is what we call emotivism, right? Emotivism is basically morality is a, is a subjective thing. It's a subjective reality that's reduced to your preferences, your attitudes, and your
in your mental states or how you feel or better yet, your taste. So morality is, is no different than some of you liking apple pie, which is the most demonic thing, right? <laughs> As to those of us who love cherry pie. Can I get an amen? How many of you like cherry pie, right? So we talked about that last week. So morality, again, has no, not, not, nothing, no transcendent quality to it. Morality is, 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 is not an objective thing that transcends us as humans. Uh, morality is reduced or deconstructed to a matter of taste. So not only as a culture are we lost morally, we're lost metaphysically, and those two are, are interchangeable, right? You lose metaphysics, you, you lose morality, and when you lose morality, what happens? Moral anarchy runs rampant in the streets. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says this, we have a responsibility as a church to demolish every stronghold, every idea. We are in an ideological war. So today what I'm talking about and what I really want to address is the world level view assumptions of our culture. It's so important that we get our ideas straight and lined up with how we see biblical sexual morality, right? And in a couple of weeks, I'm going to deal with gender. I think my wife and I, we're going to get up and we're going to talk about gender. We're going to talk about some of the reasons why people are experiencing, especially young people, rapid onset gender dysphoria. Uh, we're also going to talk about kind of what, what we've taught our kids. And we're going to talk about public schools, et cetera. But we're not going to get into the depths of that. I want to deal with world level view assumptions of what's happening in our culture. So yes, we need to demolish strongholds. But Ephesians chapter six also says, guys, please, hear me. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So there is a, there is a, there are malevolent, we believe this. This is the Christian distinctive perspective on the cosmos. We live in a world, a fallen world. Everyone say fallen. That is influenced in many ways by malevolent, this malevolent hierarchy of cosmic powers who are bent on deceiving and destroying and taking people and moving them out of the good purposes of God. How do they do that? They don't show up at your front door with some horns and say, hi, I'm the devil, right? They do it through lies. The devil is a liar. He's a pathological liar. And what is he? He's also a murderer. He's a liar who's bent on murdering and suppressing life. Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. So we will critique ideas, but we, hey, let me say this really quick. As a community, we don't build our identity around a critique. We will call things out, but we build our identity around what we're not against, but what we're for. Amen. But within the framework of what we're for, we also have to call out some things, right? So what, what are some terms? How, how do we define uh, our cultural moment? How do we find sex, gender, transgender, etc.? Let me go through definition of terms really quick. Sex is the bodily biological reality of a person's uh, sexual reproductive organs. We can go on, chromosomal state, genes, etc. I think we all would agree with that. Second, gender. What is gender? Gender is how I experience and define myself as male or female. It's how I express myself through actions, clothing, and demeanor. It's cultural expectations for how men and women should behave. I think we're pretty, you know, that's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, the third term that I wanted to find is transgender. It's a person whose gender identity or gender expression differs from their biological sex. Let me say this really quick. Um, if you're a part of the trans community or you know someone who's part of the trans community, uh, as a com and I'm going to get to this point, but as a church, we are here to love you. Yeah. 
I am not going after the trans community. I am going after the assumptions, the built-in assumptions that trans activists are using to try to shape modern understanding of selfhood and identity. As Christians, we have to make a distinction. Some of you have collapsed ideas with people and you're demonizing people. Knock it off. We will be unapologetic about the truth. We will speak the truth in love. Jesus is a truth person, but we will also love every person that needs Jesus. Let me say this really quick. People who don't know Jesus do the things that people who don't know Jesus do. When you didn't know Jesus, you did things that you didn't. Come on. I can go on and on and on. You were a broken person. You were sexually confused at one time. You had your issues. You're messed up. And many of you are still messed up. Right? So we are, we are not attacking a demographic group. We are going after ideas. So a transgender person is a person whose gender identity or gender expression differs from their biological sex. Gender dysphoria, which we'll talk more about in a couple weeks, is a marked incongruence between one's experience or expressed gender and biological sex, leading to a distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. And finally, transgenderism is the thing that we're um, addressing here today, is the idea, is, is a worldview uh, assumption and political agenda to mandate full approval for a system where sex and gender are determined solely by the feelings and desires of an individual. So those are terms that we need to know as we move forward. So where do we begin? Well, we're going to start with uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and understanding uh, our, who we are in God. We're going to talk about selfhood. And Genesis 1 and 2 is really clear about who humans are, male and female. All humans we find in Genesis 1 and 2 are created in the image of God, male and female, with human dignity, personal purpose, and inviolable Rights. You find this in chapter 1, 26 through 27. In fact, universal human rights is a uniquely Christian concept. Like liberal style democracies or classic liberalism wants to hijack and rip off Christianity. And they, they want to assume that it's through liberal democracy that we came up with universal human rights. That is a lie. Human rights. Personhood and human dignity is inextricably connected to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Secondly, humans are body, dust, plus spirit, breath. We find in chapter 2 of Genesis verse 7 that God makes a clay, dust, and breathes, forms it somehow, it's a mystery, forms it and then breathes life into this dust and it becomes what? human. So on that account, there's several things that we can derive from. A person does not, please hear me. This is how we need to see selfhood. This is what the Bible speaks to the issue of identity and selfhood. A person does not have a spirit or body, but is spirit, body, in interacting duality. So Christians are not idealists or materialist. We believe that the body is important and we believe the spirit are important. We believe equally, they're equal, uh, they're distinguishable, but they intermingle with each other. You do not have a spirit body today. Um, you do not just have a spirit, nor do you just have a body. You are a spirit body interacting duality creature. Which that leads us to the other thing. We live in a spiritual sex embodiment. You are a spiritual 
person. You have the breath of God in you. You are an image bearer. Your life matters. You are sacred from your, the, the bones in your body to the hair that you have or not the hair that you have, from your knees and elbows and toes, the, your, your physical self that's been breathed into by God himself is significant. So we live in a spiritual sexed embodiment, which then leads us to the obvious, men and women are both human, Right? They're equal but different, each kind of existing in this, this wonderful, beautiful complementarity. So I'm going to talk more about this in, in just a few minutes, but before I do that, we need to ponder gender. Everyone say, hmm. We're going to, that was good. Thanks, guys. <laughs> we make mistakes when gender, this is what we, when pondering gender, this is where we make mistakes. Number one, when we define exclusively gender by cultural stereotypes. So if you're a girl and you don't like pink, but you like to, like, you like to play baseball, there must be something wrong with you. Right? Or if you're a guy who you like to play sports, but you also like poetry, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. Right? I'm going to talk about this in several weeks. Gender dysphoria, uh, which is really affecting a lot of young people, uh, it's actually running rampant in young people. There's a multiplicity of factors that is shaping that and driving the engine and the architecture of that. But one of the reasons, and a lot of sociologists, I've spent about a year now kind of looking into this and researching this, but a lot of sociologists are seeing that the gender dysphoria is actually rooted between the ages of two and eight. And some of it is driven by these false, limited stereotypes of what it means to be male and female. You can be a girl and not like pink and play baseball and growl. Why are you saying that? Well, my daughter growls all the time, so she scares me, guys. We don't know if we need an exorcism or she's going to run the world one day. We don't, we don't know, right? We love her. Right. Some of you think, well, I'm a man and I don't like camping and I don't want to go shoot my guns uh, when we go up camping and I don't want to grin, grin down a bear. Yes, you don't have to do that, right? Now, if that's, if that's your thing uh, as a demonstration or expression of masculinity, that's totally fine. There's a spectrum when it comes to gender. Like the late Victoria man is different than the late medieval man and the late medieval man is different than the late ne- Neolithic man and the modern man is different in so many different ways and a lot of that is because there's just different, different expressions of gender, which I'm not saying is separate from your biological sex. Are you hearing me? Right? I was an athlete who loved to read and I loved poetry. Does that make me, am I weird? No. And some of you need to hear me today, right? Some of you believe the lie. Well, I'm a female or I'm a male and I like different things. That means I must be something else. That's what the trans world level view assumptions would say. Ah, oh, you're probably something else. And as Christians, we say, no, we're not going to be defined by cultural stereotypes. Are you hearing me? You don't have to go up to prove your masculinity in the woods and shoot your guns. Poo, 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 poo. Does that make you a man? I, for some guys, if, that's, if, if you think that's your definition of manhood, you, 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 we, you need some counseling, right? And I'm not saying don't go up hunting and, and all that kind of stuff, because I love that stuff. I'm kidding. I don't love it at all, right? It's suffering. <laughs> Camping and hunting is just suffering. It's self-imposed suffering. Let's move on. But as we ponder gender, we got to make sure that we don't put rigid stereotypes. 
And I'm going to talk more about masculinity and femininity over the next several weeks as well, because I think that's really important for us to understand. Number two, we also can't make the mistake, which I've already talked about, is limiting gender to a cultural construct. That's just false. You're not a, you're, you're, you're not a Gnostic spirit floating, free floating around in some machine you call a body, and all you need to do is modify your body or get rid of your body, because the true you is some spiritualized, psychologized, therapeutic self. We reject that as an understanding of gender. So what are some frameworks for gender dysphoria or just understanding kind of how do we respond to what's going on in our cultural moment? Uh, from one uh, author, he says there's three responses. Number one, the church can respond with diversity. This idea simply means transgender reflects identity and culture and it's to be celebrated. The resolution or the response is simply uh, will be towards medical intervention to match the body to the gender. This means we need more puberty blockers, hormones, sex assignment, surgery, all that kind of stuff. As a church here, I'm just going to say it from the outset, we reject this as a response to what's happening in our cultural moment. Number two, uh, we have another response, design. Design is a male-female are distinct categories created by God, and we believe in that. The resolution will be to biological sex, and there is some truth to that, but this strategy a response to a moment basically starts with just get over it. What you're feeling, no, just get over it. Right, just move on, right? It's not that big of a deal. Come on, what's wrong with you, right? It's a very demeaning approach. It's a very critical approach. It's a very judgmental approach. It's, it's, it's approach rooted in contempt and we reject this as a, as a church as well. Number three, which I think is the best way to respond to what's happening regarding gender dysphoria, the trans community, et cetera, it's called disorder. Guys, brokenness is a part of our fallen world to be addressed. It is a real problem. And we address not just gender dysphoria, but we reject all the disordered desires that we have. Guys, can you explain all of your interesting proclivities that lead you away from the good purposes of God? No, there's so much of us that's still a mystery. Why, why, are, why, why do we do the things that we do that lead us away from God's good purposes? We all have asked that question. We all have unique idiosyncrasies. We all have a unique makeup that, that causes a sense of dehumanization and courts death as opposed to the life that God has for us. Everybody in this room has that. And everybody has a real problem. And everybody should be treated with compassion. So disorder is our response. At everyone, we are living in a fallen world. And the response is and should be compassion, should be conversation, and helping people process their complicated emotions. John Tyson says this, the world is out of joint, but we live in a Genesis 3 world, which is a fallen world, with a Genesis 1 blueprint, with the binaries of male and female, uh, with a trajectory to Revelation chapter 21, which is God will make all things new. So yeah, we live in a fallen world, and yes, we come from Genesis chapter 1, which has the binaries of male and female, and they live in this beautiful complementarity of relationship, and male and female together are called uh, to steward God's beautiful world and wisdom and love and truth and build communities of justice and righteousness and shalom and truth and love, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, we are broken, and yet in Revelation 21, we see that God comes back and makes all things new. So for Jesus' followers, if you are a follower of Jesus, where do we place our authority at? That's the ultimate question here today. 
Now, this is family talk, okay? This is your lead pastor talking to you. This is not your church. You can tune me out. Don't tune me out. Everybody listen to me. Where do we put our authority when it comes to understanding who we are and our self and identity? The first response is the response of our culture. Number one, it's authenticity. We just got to be more authentic, right? Uh, So which means morality must resonate with who I feel I really am. This is the logic of emotivism, right? That morality is simply just a matter of taste and then I have to figure out who I am and then I got to give expression to that. We call this expressive individualism. Authority, according to the culture, is rooted in the self. But as followers of Jesus, we don't live by authenticity of the self. We live by, and of course, what I'm about to say could be abused. Maybe some of you come from denominations or different theological backgrounds that have experienced this in in terms of of, of abuse. But this is what we live by. It's called lordship. Lordship is rooted in love or agape. And Matthew chapter 16, 24 says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So we live by how Jesus says we are. We live by his definitions of reality. We live by his definitions of selfhood and identity. We live by his directives. We live by his leading. We live by his character. We live by who he says we are. And this is important because, hey, this is important because many of you are living by your feels, right? You're living by your vibes. You're living by your, your thoughts. And you're living, you're living through maybe a, a, a cultural way of understanding yourself. And this is, could be completely untethered from what we're talking about, gender dysphoria. But you're living in such a way that goes against the good purposes of God. And, and because it feels right in some way. But as followers of Jesus, we live by how he says we are. We don't live by the definitions of anxiety. We don't live by, well, I'm a depressed person. We don't live by, well, I'm always going to be this way because my mama and daddy and my grandpappy was like this, right? We don't live by our genetics. We don't live by certainly our hormones. hormones. We don't live by the certain criterion that the world lives by. We live by a higher moral good authority. His name is Jesus and he has a plan and a purpose for you. Here's the thing, I heard this from a pastor, but if you don't want to be a Christian, then you don't want, obviously, lordship. Because to be a Christian, please hear me, is to be meddled with. This should be good news. Because there are a lot of things in my life that I want God to heal me from. Right? I don't want to stay in my brokenness. I don't want to stay in my trauma. I don't want to stay in the pit of despair. I want God to come and reach in to the despair and hopelessness of my life and pull me out. And this is the wonderful news about denying ourselves. This isn't Jesus, oh, he's a sadomasochist who wants, he's a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want us to have life. No, the way into life is you gotta deny the life-suppressing behaviors and habits that go against God's design and purpose for you. So if you, if, hey, if you don't wanna change and you wanna be what you wanna be, don't become a Christian. Because God, for the rest of your life, will always meddle with you. (laughs) 
as one pastor says, that the Holy Spirit is the unchangeable change agent. And the Holy Spirit comes in so many different ways and he meddles with our life. I remember as uh, an 18-year-old kid, and I've shared my story before, I went to a camp and I was trying to figure out a lot of different things. I was confused and I had this powerful encounter with the love of God. It felt like liquid love. It felt like 1 Corinthians 13 that I was partially face-to-face with Jesus himself. I could hear his voice and his presence was circumambient. The power of God was so real. And in that moment, God changed my life forever. That was God meddling with me. I was going to become a politician and an athlete. God was saying, hey, I love you so much. You're going to suck at that. But I want you to be a pastor, right? Changed my life. And then I remember several years went by and my father came to me at the age of 21, 22. I can remember the conversation that I had with him. And uh, it was actually my mom telling my dad to go talk to me. Uh, I was recently diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and I wasn't taking care of my body and I wasn't eating right. My dad said, hey, if you want to live a long life, you're going to have to change your habits. That was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, yes, comforts and gives strength to us, but he comes to meddle with your life. I remember early on in marriage, I've shared this story so many times before, my wife and I, we just had a back and forth, probably the first three years of just good discussions, which many people call arguments, right? (laughs) And my wife's frustration, and it was a holy frustration, is that she loved the fact, she would always start with, Chris, you're just so handsome, okay? (laughs) Just amazing, right? But then she would obviously go to the point like, I know you're analytical and I know you like to think about a lot of different things. The problem is, is that so many times you're not here. You're not present. And I remember thinking, oh my God, you're right. That was the Holy Spirit. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, expect God to meddle with your world-level view assumptions. Expect God to meddle with your ethical systems. Expect God to meddle with a little bit with with your identity, with your selfhood, with how you're living in life, etc., etc., etc. God is the great change agent. So what's our response as I close here? How do we respond as a church to gender dysphoria, the trans community, all these world-level assumptions that I briefly sketched out for us? Well, number one, we have to, as the people of God, be radically committed to a high view of the body and dignity. This is what my, my wife, I just want to read this to you. I had her send it to me. This is what she says to our kids every single night, and I just love it. She goes, okay, Guys, repeat this after me. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, right? Okay. And he is good. And then she goes down the list. And he is my best friend. He made me and he did a good job. I can trust him. He makes no mistakes. He loves me and he is always with me. And his plans for me are good. And we say that over and over and over with our kids. What is that? with what she's doing. She is advocating for a high view of the body. We now live in a cultural moment that degrades the body. The body is, is irrelevant. We can modify it or we can get rid of it. We have technology, so we can do a lot of different things. But the Bible has a high view of 
the human body. 1 Corinthians 6, our teaching text here today, is set within the framework of improper sexual character. However, Paul's encouragement is a building block for understanding ourselves today. Verse 19 says this, or do you not know that your body, everyone say body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body matters. Your chromosomes matter. You are not an accident. You, are, you were born for such a time as this. God did not place you in the Neolithic period. Thank the Lord. God did not place you in the medieval times. Thank the Lord. Come on, somebody. Somebody give me a praise break for that one, right? God placed you. Gave you your body, gave your idiosyncrasies, your personality, all the nuances of who you are, your fleshed out sexed embodiment for such a time as this. And that simply means that God also has a job for you, for you to do. He has a purpose. He has meaning for your life. You're not just a free floating, spontaneous person that just randomly is going to go through life. God has a specific plan for you to bring about his good purposes, his healing love into this world that desperately needs us. This world needs the church to be truly who it is, a city set on a hill that refuses, that refuses to hide God's not called us to hide. God, God has called us to shine brightly in a crooked and perverse generation. So two things. How do we glorify God in our bodies? Well, number one, we got to direct our entire embodied existence, which we talked about interacting with our spirit, which we'll call your whole person, towards the promises and boundaries Jesus has set for us. So that means your sex matters. You're not an accident. And then number two, this is a corollary of this, I think we need to celebrate the gift and goodness of our bodies. Yes. Guys, I think so many times we, we, we become semi-medieval Platonists, which basically is this kind of the, the, the real world of authentic self is this disembodied world. And as Christians, if we're not careful, as we compare and compete and we go on social media, app after app after app, and we start comparing our bodies with other bodies and we start thinking about how to modify our bodies or we, we want this or we want that life and we don't have that life. And we start just, again, we start to compare and then we start conforming to external norms that society has imposed on us. What are we doing? We are degrading our body. We need to have a high view of our bodies. Guys, whether you're bigger or smaller, taller or shorter, whether you have red hair, dark hair, irrespective of the color of your skin, where you're from, your genetic makeup, I could go on and on and on. Those things matter. You are exactly, please hear me, you are exactly who God has designed you to be. That doesn't mean you have to feel that. And I know some of you might not feel that way. Maybe you feel in, in, in profound ways or maybe in profound psychological ways distant from that. And maybe what I'm saying sounds hollow to you. And I totally, I totally understand that. And I want to be sensitive to what you're experiencing. But I think it's important as followers of Jesus, if you are a Christ follower, your sex embodiment matters infinitely to God. So we need, to, we need to have a high commitment to 
uh, the body and its dignity. And finally, number two, we are called to welcome the stranger. So you're going to roll your eyes at me, um, but I don't care, right? This is dad time, okay? I'm coming to you like a, as a dad, right? I'm old enough to say that. Who did Jesus minister to? Don't roll your eyes. The undesirables. The outcasts. Tax collectors. Right? Bad people. Tax collectors in that time were seen. If you're a tax collector here today, you're okay, all right? But back then in the ancient world, tax collectors were basically the equivalent of how some people see the trans community, right? Or other societal um, pathologies, right? Who did Jesus minister to? He ministered to the undesirables, the outcasts, uh, the stranger. Who did Jesus love? Who did Jesus love? The undesirables, the outcasts. Who did Jesus spend time with? The undesirables, the outcasts, all the people that were rejected, all the broken people. Who did, who did Jesus, come on, give me a scripture, someone. Who did Jesus write off and say, get over it? If, now, you, 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 can, you can be whoever you want to be, but if you, if you intend to follow Jesus, we need to follow his pattern, right? His modus operandi as a follower of Jesus, our modus, excuse me, modus operandi as a follower of Jesus is to follow his overall lifestyle. He never said, get over it. Now, he said, go and sin no more, but that was after he forgave and he healed and he transformed a life completely right side up. And I say this all the time. Jesus' first words is not condemnation. Jesus' first word is not judgment or contempt. It's never condemnation or contempt. Jesus said, I came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. Yes. We are called as a church to welcome the stranger. You see, the psychology of suffering caused by gender dysphoria is real. And you need to understand this. This distinction of, of, of body and, and genders is an effect of the fall, if you were to diagram it, right? If someone says, well, the science says this about gender dysphoria, most likely they don't know because the science is still in its infancy and there's a lot of confusion about what the science is saying. I will talk and speak to that issue in a couple weeks, but the problem overall when it comes to this distinction or this divorce of body and gender is simply the effect of the fall. As one author writes, sin causes pr uh, profound alienation, first and foremost with God, and we're alienated then from ourselves. What was meant to be um, a whole and integrated person is now deeply fractured because of the fall. We don't feel aligned to ourselves. This is why we have the certain proclivities that we have, not just gender dysphoria. This is why we have desires that are disordered. This is why we have certain particular lusts. This is why we have a certain, certain proclivity towards greed. And this is why some of us have a certain proclivity towards not being a Dallas Cowboy fan. And we will rebuke you today, okay? <laughs> right, we all are a product of the fall. You all have disordered desires. Is that God's intention? No, it's just the reality that we live in a Genesis 3 fallen world, right? The good news is we are on the trajectory towards Revelation 21 where God will heal every disordered desire that we have. Some of us are more prone to anxiety. Some of us are more prone to um, exhaustion. Some of us to depression. We can go on and on and on. But the reason why we experience, in, in the cases of those who are experiencing gender dysphoria, deep, profound, psychological confusion is because we live in a disordered world world.
Therefore, we must, as I close here, become a people of compassion. For some young people, they did not choose what family and environment to grow up in. Are you hearing me? They didn't choose to have bad influences. Yes, of course, they participated in some things. We're all held accountable, right? We're all responsible for certain things at a certain age. And of course, there's a multiplicity of other factors when it comes to uh, gender dysphoria and its unique makeup and its spectrum. But there are so many young people that are just profoundly confused. Now, this is an altogether different thing, and I want to be careful on how I say this, but I remember in eighth grade, just as an example, I remember I couldn't even get to the point where I could go to the mall because I was so filled with shame and contempt for my body. I was like, I'd been made fun of my whole life about, oh, you're a redhead and all that kind of stuff, and now I look so good, okay? All right? <laughs> oh, just kidding. I'm just kidding. I just, because it gets weird when I say that, and you're like, all of you are like, oh, is he okay? Yes, I'm fine, okay? <laughs> But I remember going to places and I just couldn't even look at myself like in, in the mirror. And I just, anybody would come by, I would just put my head down. Because I had this profound psychological deep issue regarding my body. Now, yes, it's a little bit different than what people experience with gender dysphoria, but there's a similarity. There's a, some of you experienced that before. Anxiety and depression, etc. Though it's different, there's, there's a profound psychological confusion that many people that are going through gender dys dysphoria experience. So, we must become a welcoming church. The French word for hospital means, I love this, house of God. Amen. Hospital is derived from hospitality, which means love of stranger. So you combine love of stranger with hospitality and you take hospitality and combine it with hospital, which means house of God in French. It just basically means the house of God is designed to be a place where strangers are loved. Or we can say it this way, the church is a hospital for people who are messy, broken, who need love, who need truth and need support. As a parent, which is funny, my wife and I, we laugh about this. Things which were not things become things when you become a parent. For example, it's called the smell test. With seven kids, when we see a dark brown spot, we have to smell it to see if it's either chocolate or poop, okay? <laughs> so before parenting, right, those things weren't things. And if that smell test before parenting was a thing, you need counseling, okay? <laughs> Right? What am I trying to say? Well, what I'm trying to say is that as parents, we're committed to the mess. We're committed to it. <laughs> Sometimes we don't want to be committed to it, but we're committed to taking the mess and the disorder and bringing order out of it, rearranging the minds of our kids. That's our responsibility. That's also the responsibility of the church. My question for us today, and this is my pastoral question, are, are we ready to be that kind of church? Or do we just simply want to continue to con consume church? Do we want a model of church that's based on consumption and consumerism? Or do we want to be a, a model of a church that's based on compassion and love and truth? We'll speak the truth in love. But I want to be a church that walks in compassion. There was a man named Walter or Walt Heyer. Uh, he was a former transgender who detransitioned after many years. And after many years, he realized that God had given his body as a gift. And then he came to the point where he committed his life to follow Jesus. 
But what's interesting, before that, as he was uh, presenting himself as a woman, he went to a church because he wanted help. He wanted God. He was confused. So a man dressed up as a woman, he had hormone therapy, he had sex assignment, um, sex assignment um, surgery, all of that, walks into a church within two weeks, the lead pastor came to his house one day and told him, you are not welcome in this church. Thankfully, he found another church and that church helped him on his painful journey towards spiritual and emotional healing. And yes, it was a journey for him. But it was amazing how this church came alongside of him loved him, spoke the truth, pointed him to Jesus, prayed with him, he had good counseling, good pastors, and eventually he got it. And he made a commitment to follow Jesus. So my question for you today is, what church do we want to be? Do, what you're, do you want your pastor to go to someone that we just don't agree with and say, you're not welcomed here? What church do we want to be? Well, we have it. We already have our mission statement in a sense. It, it's painted on the building and it will be there for the rest of my lifetime, right? It's called what? Jesus for the people. Not just Jesus for some people, but Jesus for the people. See, here's the problem. The problem with a lot of, we all have it. We, and I've been in ministry for a long time, for over 25 years. And I've talked to many of you. We all have our categories of those who are accepted and those who are not. We have this weird hierarchical category of blessed and not blessed. A lot of it is just internalized. A lot of it is an implicit. Some of you, I have to draw it out of you, but we all have categories that we accept this kind of pe these kinds of people or this demographic of people, and we don't accept these kinds of people. Well, when it comes to following Jesus, we're called to love all people. Thank you for that laugh, Kyle. Let me say this really quick as I close. The church doesn't have a mission statement. God's mission has a church. And we are here to live as Jesus did for the sake of this world. This means we will love people. We will love people. We will love people. We will love people. We will always love people. But sometimes it also means we will run afoul of the authorities as we speak the truth. So we will be truth tellers and we will be people that will walk in love. And it will get messy and it'll be hard to figure out how those two work together in the absurdity of our culture, but we are committed to following the Holy Spirit, to be on mission, to be a missionary people, to love people, to welcome the stranger, to speak the truth, to lead people to Jesus, to see the power of God change lives. And this is my last thought. Jesus for the people means we're called to be good citizens, right? We're called to be good citizens, but there might be a day that we can no longer be good citizens, right? Because um, we're asked to depart from our Christian faith. So there are times, yes, we're called to be good citizens until we can no longer be good Christians. We're, we are called to follow Jesus. There's common ground in our culture, and I love that. All truth is God's truth. And there are, there's, there's much more agreement than the social media world wants to say between us and those who don't believe in God, right? There's agreement there, yet there's a lot of disagreement. 
And we're called ultimately not to live by the norms of society and culture that wants to impose itself on us. We are called no matter what to live in the love and truth of Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And there will be a day where every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he was right. He's in charge. He overcame the world, the flesh, the devil. He saved us from enslavement to sin. Come on, somebody. He held on at the cross to all the toxins and the pollutants and all the sin in our life and the sickness. And he released his blessing over us and he saved us from that. But he also saved us for an incredible good purpose. Guys, this church, Capital Church, has been designed for such a time as this. And you are here as an individual designed by God for such a time as this. We are not living in bleak times. We are living in times where I believe God is going to do incredible things that would shock your wildest expectations. God is on the move. God is looking for people to be Jesus for the people. To bring healing and life and hope and love and grace and truth to a world that's benighted and confused. And everyone said amen. amen. Barry heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for your grace today. Lord, I thank you for, for those two parting thoughts that we would be a people committed to a high view of the body high view of dignity. Lord, that we would be committed to not just speaking the truth, but living the truth in, our, in the embodiment of our lives. I thank you, Father, that we begin to see ourselves as you see us. That you're good. You didn't make mistakes. That we're not cosmological flukes in some meaningless, pitiless universe. But you've called us, designed us to live in this hour and this time. I thank you that we would know that deep, deep, deep inside of ourselves. And second, I thank you that we would become a church that welcomes all those various and sundry demographic groups, that we would love all people, that we would pray, and that we would serve, and that we would love and love and love and love and love in Jesus' name, and we would see the power of God released. We would see the miracles of God released into the lives of your people in Jesus' name. We bless you. As your eyes are closed, your heads are bowed. I just want to pray this really quick and I'm going to have my father come up and just close. If you're, I'm not going to have you do anything, but if you're experiencing with any sort of spectrum of gender dysphoria or you've always felt wrong inside of your body or maybe you know someone, You've been confused. Maybe some of you have told somebody, maybe some of you haven't told anybody. But today you, you want the freedom that only God can give you. I just, I wanna pray for you. You don't have to do anything. I'm not gonna have you raise your hand, stand up, whatever. If that's you, I'm gonna pray for you right now. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come to anybody in this room. I just ask you would come and just bring, bring your love. Lord, I pray you would bring the revelation of who you are pray that 
the words of condemnation that might be over them that have been said by other people, you would remove that. Pray you would lift off the confusion. Lord, you would bring healing to the mind and to the body. And I thank you, you would come and just love and love and love and love and lead them to you. And I thank you that there would just be common for some people who I pray for, I, I just... For some people, the power of God just comes and instantly changes them. And if that's the case, I, I thank you that some people would be instantly changed by the power of God today. But there's also other people that there's a process that God wants to take them through and uh, an emotional, spiritual journey of realizing who they are. And if that's the case, I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you would just give them grace and strength to give themselves, to commit themselves to you, Holy Spirit. And I thank you that you're here today. So bring comfort, bring strength in the mighty name of Jesus. Last prayer. I want to pray for all of us. Take your hands, put it on your heart. We want to be a Jesus for the people church. Help us to be committed to the mess and the complicated nature of reality. This, this goes beyond what we're talking about today. This, this is just life. Lord, help us to be a kind of church that welcomes the stranger that loves those who are broken, those who are in desperate need of help. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're revolutionizing our church to be who you've called us to be. So we say yes to you. We say yes to your plan. We say yes to being a church, a welcoming church, a Jesus for the people church. In your name we pray, and everyone said amen. amen. for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.